Welcome to podcast number seven. Here at the Voice of the Arts, Joe Weber, your host. Today we have a show covering much of the history of the Old West, and in particular, the life of Wyatt Earp. Billy some 40 years ago 
Considered by many to be the best flat picker alive today, Norman Blake with Billy Gray. We're going to go now to our interview with Jim Dunham and the subject, the gunslingers of the Wild West, and in particular, Wyatt Earp. My guest today at WMLB is Jim Dunham, who's director of special projects at the Booth Western Art Museum in Cartersville, Georgia. Jim grew up in Illinois, and from the time he was a child, was fascinated by the American West. Jim, welcome to WMLB. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. You uh, were a high school student when you were playing around with guns doing the quick draw that you saw in the movies. Right. I was born in 1943, so that meant that I was a teenager at the time in which the Western dominated television. Uh, In fact, there was a time in the 50s in which there were 30 television Westerns a week, which is just incredible. That's more than all the reality shows and CSI shows and in American Idol shows today put together. And because of the the fact that the Western dominated television, it almost didn't matter where in the United States you lived, you were going to be influenced by it in some way. And I became fascinated with the idea of being the fastest gun in the world, went out and bought a real gun, a holster, and began to practice. And little did I know it, but there was a minor sport that was developing at the same time called fast draw, and there were literally thousands of people like myself that would go to these uh, sporting goods clubs and practice to see who could be the fastest draw, and I was very much a part of that world. And you were pretty successful at it. I was. Uh, from the time that I was uh, about 17 years old, I started getting very close to the the top times. Now, I never was the world's champion fast draw. There was always guys that were a little better than I was, and there were always guys that could win contests, but I was always in that in that higher echelon of people who could draw fast. We're talking times that on a self-start was about 12 hundredths of a second, and in response to a signal where a light went on and you had to draw and hit a target, uh, we're talking there were times in the 30s, about 30 hundredths of a second. And that led to one of your first jobs. Well, what happened was, is, is first of all, I it, I went to the University of Colorado because I, I, even though Illinois was a nice place to grow up, I wanted to go west. And when I was at the university, I did a lot of theater. And I had a friend that I did acting plays with that uh, went on to UCLA and, and was taking uh, uh, courses in cinematography at UCLA Cinematography School. I went out to visit him after college. And he said, why don't you talk to the movie people about what you can do with a gun? And uh, he was able to set up an interview with Barry Coe, who was a producer at 20th Century Fox. And I did some spinning and twirling and flipping the guns in the air, did all this juggling with the guns and showed how to fast draw. And after that interview was over, he said, how would you like to have a job? And I said, in the movies? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, we do studio tours. And we have a, a, a studio tour show that is at the Western Street with the stuntmen, and every studio tour ends up at that show, and then they watch a program of guys getting shot off the roof and having a fight. He says, you can be part of that show, and then whenever we have a need for somebody to teach an actor how to handle a gun, we'll have you do the work. And so 
1967, I went to work for 20th Century Fox Studio Tours, but then also started teaching actors how to handle guns. And over the years, I figure I've taught about 30 movie actors how to either draw, spin, or twirl guns for Westerns. How long did that career last? Well, it really ended by by 1974, uh, when the westerns began to, uh, to fade, from fade and wane out. Then I I went on the lecture tour business, began to work as a speaker for banquets and conventions, and 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 I really I put together a program which was based upon all the humorous things that happened in the movies, and and I kind of I all through this time I was reading history. And so all throughout the time, even from the time I was a teenager, uh, I spent more time reading historical books rather than fictional books. I have a library of 4,000 books on the Old West, and about 10 of them are fiction. Almost the re- all the rest of them are, are biographies or historical. I just, I'm fascinated with the real West, what the real people were like. And so you, I really did my homework. You told me earlier that Jack Palance was one cowboy who couldn't get on a horse. Palance told uh, uh, George Stevens, who was the director of Shane, that he was a good horseman, but when they came to actually filming, he couldn't do it. And so the two things that are in the movie Shane that are kind of interesting, one is that when he gets on his horse, it's actually a reverse of him getting off the horse. They actually filmed him getting off, and then they reversed it so that he could get on his horse smoothly because he was never able to, to get into the saddle without being clumsy. And then he couldn't ride fast, and, and uh, the director said, we want you to gallop into town, and he bounced so much that the director shaked his, you know, shook his head, and he said, no, <laughs> you can't do that. So come in at a walk. What's interesting is that when you watch the movie Shane, you're so used to guys on horseback galloping that the fact that Palance walks his horse into town has a presence about it that, that is, uh, it makes him even more evil than anybody would, would expect uh-huh. if he galloped his horse. As someone who's read a substantial amount of this Western history, tell us a little bit about a character like Wyatt Earp. Well, uh, I, I like Wyatt Earp. He's one of my favorites. And I I probably have 50 books about Wyatt Earp and, and some excellent biographies about him. And what what's interesting about Wyatt Earp is, is partly the, due to the fact that we have more uh, information about him from his time period. There's a lot of characters like Wild Bill Hickok, who I think are fascinating characters, but we know very little about him because nothing was written about him at the time and nothing was left behind. But Earp, when he was, was active in his gunfights, usually was uh, followed by paper trail. And uh, the gunfight at O.K. Corral, for example, went to court, and there was 30 consecutive days in court. There were two newspapers in town. The, the Tombstone uh, Nugget was the Democratic organ, and the Tombstone Epitaph was a Republican organ. Wyatt was a Republican, by the way, all through his career. And so both newspapers were doing stories about what had happened in that 30-second gunfight, and then they followed the trial and reported the information. So as historians, we go back, and there's this huge body of information to know what happened and how it happened and what everybody said in court. What did happen? What was the gunfight? In well, the basically, it's a 30-second gunfight in which three men were killed, three men were wounded, and three men ran away. The only one that was not wounded, who didn't run away or not killed, was Wyatt Earp. And Wyatt was left standing. He had bullets in the flaps of his frock coat. The, the, actually, the bullets came so close, they, they notched his, his clothing. It was a gunfight that was part of an arrest that went wrong. Wyatt's older brother, Virgil, was the chief of police of the town of Tombstone. He was the sheriff or the marshal of Tombstone. And as marshal of Tombstone, he was going down to this vacant lot near the O.K. Corral to arrest a group of cowboys that were wearing guns inside the city limits. It was against the law 
1881 to wear your guns inside town. And here were the Clantons and the McLowrys that were packing iron, and uh, he went down there to arrest them for that. But the real problem, the underlying problem, was that the Clantons and the McLowrys, and especially Ike Clanton, had been going around threatening the lives of the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday, their friend. Doc was born in Griffin, Georgia, and and uh, and practiced as a dentist in Atlanta. He he was a Georgia boy, but he had gone out west and made friends with Wyatt Earp. And so these these guys, these Clantons, McLowrys, were threatening the lives of the of the Earps, and they had been into a big argument over over jurisdiction. The Clantons and McLowrys were cattle rustlers, and the Earps were peace officers that were kind of putting a stop to the rustling in the area. And so this was sort of like headed, almost destiny, that it was going to head to a collusion like this. And the trial, uh, you had told me that Wyatt Earp was was being accused of police brutality. That's really true. See, because what happened was is that that, uh, Virgil said, you men are under arrest, I want your guns. And immediately, Billy Clanton and Frank McLaurie jerked their guns and started shooting. But when they go to court, you know, everybody everybody in court has a different different story. And so Ike Clanton and the the people who lived through the gunfight, see, three of them were killed, but there were a couple that lived through the gunfight. And the ones that lived through it, like Ike Clanton, they went to court and they said that the Earps had started the fight and that the first shots were fired by Morgan Earp and Doc Holliday, and that, and that they were simply defending their lives against these men that were trying to kill them. And, uh, and so they had to go to trial because you had completely different stories. And so they were charged with police brutality. They were charged with murder. And, uh, and they all had to hire lawyers. Wyatt hired Thomas Fitch, one of the better lawyers of the day, and they all had to testify. And what we have in the uh, Wells-Spicer decision is we have his explanation that that the Earps were not guilty of any crime because they were police officers doing their duty. But he listened to all of the stories. In fact, Ike Clanton said that the whole reason why this was done was to kill him, and yet uh, the judge said that he was the easiest to kill. Nobody shot at him because he ran away, and so his story falls apart. Was Ike Clanton then imprisoned? For attempted murder, you know that's interesting because because you would assume then that these guys would go they'd go out and arrest these guys and bring charges against him, and and nobody did that. Uh, they, they got away with it, and that's part of the nature of the West is that is that because you're not in the major cities, you're not in Chicago, you're not in New York, you're not even in St. Louis. Uh, the law was was farther and few between, and they really couldn't follow up on a lot of those things. So a lot of people got away with things that they wouldn't if they were in a city. You're listening to podcast number seven here on The Voice of the Arts with your host, Joe Weber. We will resume with part two of our interview with Jim Dunham. But first, we're going to take a little break and listen to an audio clip from the movie Raising Arizona that also involved some desperados of a rather comic nature played by John Goodman and William Forsyth and, of course, Nicolas Cage. What's going on? You stay in here. Open up. They ain't gonna split up the family. Open up in there. Well, I'd like to see him try. Open up, baby. We'll let you plea bargain. <laughs> oh, girl, don't make me sick. Oh, 
<laughs> I'd like you to meet Gail and Evel Snopes. My pair is ever broken at her. <laughs> Boys, so here's my wife. Well, it's been done. Kinda late for visitors, isn't it, huh? Oh, well, yeah, honey. But these boys just got out of the joint. So we gotta show a little hospitality. Well, now, H.I. Looks like you've been up to the devil's business. Hey, is that a him or her? It's a little boy. Got a name, does he? Uh, so far, we've just been using Junior. We call him Junior. <laughs> you mean, you mean JR, just like TV show? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Welcome home, son. Where's he been? Phoenix. Uh, he was uh, visiting his grandparents. They're separated. Oh, would that be your folks, ma'am? No, I'm afraid not. Well, I thought you said your folks was dead, H.I. He thought Junior should see their final resting place. Well, why don't you boys have a seat? <laughs> Hi. It's two in the morning. What's that smell? We don't always smell this way, Miss McDonough. I was just explaining to your better half here that when we were tunneling out, we happened to hit the main sewer line. Dumb luck, that. And we followed that You mean you busted out of jail? No, ma'am, uh... We released ourselves on our own recognizance. What Evel here is trying to say is that we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us. My Lord, he's cute. He's a little outlaw. You can see that high. Now, listen, you folks can't stay here. Ma'am? You just can't stay. Now, I appreciate you being friends of high and all, but this is a decent family now. I mean, we got a toddler here. Hey, who wears the pants around here, H.I.? <laughs> now, honey, these boys just got out of the joint. Don't you honey me. Now, you boys can sit a while and catch up, but then you'll be on your way. Got you on an awful short leash, don't she, H.I.? I suppose 
sing the blues all night long like he used to. The dusty poncho bit down south ended up and left his mouth. The day they laid poor poncho low, lefty left for Ohio, and where he got the bread to go. cheap hotel the border's quiet and Cleveland's cold so the story ends we're told Poncho needs your prayers it's true save a few for lefty too he just did what he had to do Towns Van Zandt singing his own work, Poncho and Lefty. It was covered by Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and was something of a hit. And we're going to return now to our interview with Jim Dunham on the life of Wyatt Earp. I know when night has gone. You're listening to podcast number seven here on The Voice of the Arts with your host, Joe Weber. We now continue with part two of our interview with Jim Dunham, who's the director of special projects at the Booth Western Art Museum in Cartersville, Georgia. Let's get to the role of of Doc Holliday. Was Doc Holliday in that gunfight? Doc Holliday was in the gunfight, and John Henry Holliday was born in Griffin, Georgia. He was was very young during the, the Civil War. And his family moved to Valdosta because they were afraid that the uh, Sherman's March to the Sea was going to get down to Griffin and burn Griffin. So they they uh, up and moved to Valdosta for a short time. But when the war was over, they came back to Atlanta. And, and uh, most of the adult males in the family were in the medical profession. Uh, a lot of... Uh, 
John's uh, uncles were doctors. And as a result, he got interested in that, and he went to Philadelphia and studied to be a dentist at the Philadelphia School of Dentistry. He actually graduated from the Pennsylvania uh, Dental School with a degree in diseases of the mouth and diseases of the teeth. And with his graduation from dental school, he came back to Atlanta and opened up an office in Atlanta as a dentist, and he began to practice as a dentist. Then he was told he had tuberculosis, and they said, you will do better in a drier climate. And so he went from Atlanta to Texas and began to practice as a dentist. He never stopped being a dentist. It's interesting because he's famous as a gunfighter. But even when he was in Dodge City, Kansas, he rented a hotel uh, room in, at the Dodge House and then took out ads in the newspaper saying, John Henry Holiday DDS, uh, if you have you know teeth that need to be pulled or if you need uh, cavities filled, uh, his dental work will be at such and such a place. And then at the bottom of the ad it says, where satisfaction is not given, your money will be cheerfully refunded. I don't know about you, but I don't see myself telling Doc Holliday I want my money back. <laughs> he, he was a very dangerous guy. His, his tuberculosis made him somewhat bitter and somewhat uh, unhappy with life. He probably knew he was dying. He very quickly became an alcoholic, and in addition to becoming an alcoholic, he loved to gamble. And so the dental work became secondary to the gambling, and pretty much he was spending all his time in saloons playing pharaoh, playing cards, playing poker, and drinking too much. And so really he was that world. Wyatt Earp was a saloon man. Wyatt Earp was, was a gambler. And even though he was a police officer, he also was a gambler and also had uh, money tied up in, in gambling operations. He owned pharaoh uh, banks, and he also, in Tombstone, Arizona, owned a fourth interest of the gambling uh, casino, the Oriental Saloon and Gambling Casino. So he had business deals that were connected with gambling. So they became friends through the gambling. I think there's a chance that Doc saved Wyatt's life in Dodge City, but they became very close and very, very much friends. And uh, as a good friend of mine, Jeff Morey, says, I think that Doc made Wyatt laugh. He was one of the, the humorous parts of, of Wyatt Earp's life, and they were close friends all through their lives. And he was recruited to go as part of this posse to arrest the— uh... Yeah, they, they had gone from Dodge City— to Prescott, Arizona, then from Prescott down to Tombstone, and they were the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday were were all com- brought together to walk down Fremont Street when this gunfight took place. Which of the Earp brothers were wounded in the in the gunfight? Two of them were wounded quite seriously. Virgil received a bullet through the calf of his leg, and it caused him to fall to the ground. He was able to regain uh, standing vertically after a while, but basically it took him to the ground. And then Morgan Earp had a bullet hit him in his right shoulder, and the bullet exited his left shoulder. It slid across his back just underneath the skin, just missing the spinal cord. It lost all its energy going through his body, and they actually found the projectile in the flaps of his coat. So he was very, very, very seriously wounded. Uh, On Wyatt Earp's side, he was not hit at all. But bullets had put holes in his clothing, so he had he had actual holes through his frock coat, and and so three of them actually uh, came very close. Doc Holliday had a bullet go through his holster, and the leather of his holster kind of slowed it down a little bit, but it put a pretty good gash on his hip, and uh, and he was very 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 painfully uh, injured. He wasn't seriously hurt, but he it was hurt painful to him. He thought he had been hurt a lot worse. In fact, Frank McLowry, who fired that shot. Uh, 
he he basically uh, was lying on the ground dying and doc walked over and he says he's he said uh he shot me and i mean to mean to kill him and he realized that it was not necessary he was already dying which of the McLowrys were killed? Well, Frank McLowry was killed, Tom McLowry was killed, and Billy Clanton was killed. Uh, Frank was probably the most dangerous. He was 33 years old. He was the same age as Wyatt Earp, and he was a pistolero, a shootist, a man with a reputation. All of these guys were involved in, in cattle wrestling. Uh, Billy Clanton was the youngest. He had never been in harm's way before, and he was only 19 years old. But he was over six foot tall. He was a big strapping youth. Uh, but he was certainly the, the most inexperienced of the outlaws. Now, when Wyatt Earp was in Tombstone, he was romantically involved with a woman. Yeah, and, and uh, the, the literature, of course, has done a wonderful job of telling us that story. Uh, all of the biographies of Wyatt have, have uh, fleshed that out pretty good. Her name was Josephine Marcus. And Josephine was from a middle uh, wealthy, not not super wealthy, Jewish family from San Francisco. Uh, the Marcus family was in the import business, and uh, and the daughter was 19 years old. She loved theater. She wanted to be an actress, and she ran away from the family in San Francisco and joined a Gilbert and Sullivan production company that was traveling out west. And they went out west, and they per were performing in Tombstone, Arizona, and she got romantically involved with the sheriff of Cochise County, John Bean, and she stayed in Tombstone. Uh, shortly after that, she met Wyatt Earp, and at some point, uh, she decided that Wyatt was a better catch than, than Johnny Bean, and she uh, changed her allegiance and her affection. And what we don't know is whether Wyatt had already left his, his second wife, Maddie Blaylock, or whether uh, Josephine might have been the cause for it. But whatever it was, uh, Josephine marries Wyatt Earp, and they spend the next 50 years together. And when he dies in 1929, he's buried in the Jewish cemetery just outside of San Francisco because the Marcus family had a family plot. And so even though uh, Wyatt himself was not Jewish, he's buried in the Jewish cemetery. Did uh, Josephine reconcile with her family when she came she back did. to yeah, San she Francisco? Did. Yeah, she did. Yeah, and and there was really it wasn't a, a problem after after that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're talking with Jim Dunham, the director of special projects at the Booth Western Museum, a man who's spent most of his adult life and several years before he was an yeah. adult combing through uh, Western history. We've covered Wyatt Earp and the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. Now, you say it really wasn't at the O.K. Corral. It was in a vacant lot. It was adjacent. a vacant lot. The gunfight starts in an empty lot, and it's not very big. It's probably 15 to 20 feet at the most. And it is between uh, Mayor Harwood's house. The ex-Mayor Harwood has a house on the corner there next to the corner on Fremont Street. And then on the other side of the vacant lot was the C.S. Fly's boarding house and photography studio. C.S. Fly was one of the great photographers of the Old West, and Camellius S. Fly took a lot of the photographs that are famous of, of Geronimo and the Apache Indians in the 1800s. And, uh, and then he had a boarding house. In fact, that boarding house was where Doc Holliday lived. He, he lived there with, with his wife or girlfriend, we're not sure, uh, Big Nose Kate. And, um, and so the gunfight starts in that vacant lot. It moves out into Fremont Street, and actually most of the people actually die in Fremont Street. And it's always referred to in the court trial and in the newspaper stories that are written about it as the street fight of Tombstone. 
When they started making movies, they didn't like that as a title, so they called it Gunfight at the OK Corral, which is what the, the Sturgis film with Burt Lancaster and Kurt Douglas is called, Gunfight at OK Corral. OK Corral was owned by John Montgomery, and the corral was O period, K period uh, corral, and it was where you kept your horses when you came to town. The corral was not made out of, of logs. It was made out of adobe block bricks, and these were like thick walls that separated the stalls from other stalls where you could keep your horse. So the gunfight was really a, a, a vacant lot gunfight. But what kind of a motion picture title would be gunfight at the vacant lot right. next to the Harwood House? <laughs> that, that just isn't going to fly. Kind of you know? wouldn't fit yeah. on the marquee. Yeah. Uh, but I found it very interesting that you said that guns— could not be worn in most of these towns like Tombstone or Dodge City. Yeah, they were very... They had to be registered before you got into right. town. They had very strict laws, uh, and it was a $25 fine to walk around the streets of Tombstone in 1881 with your gun on. And uh, you think about that, and at, fr at first you think, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. But then the reason is that everybody had guns. And, and it wasn't like one out of 10 or one out of 20 people with guns on. It was like every single male in, in the entire existence had either a gun on his hip or a gun in his saddlebag or a gun in his buckboard or wagon. And so everybody came to town with firearms. They, you know, in the wilderness, they depended on them for every number of reasons. And so in order not to have 20 cowboys standing at the bar packing iron, the town councils always passed laws saying that it's against the law to wear your gun in the city limits. So you would check it with either the livery stable or the sheriff's office or with the hotel, and then you went to the bars without a gun on your hip. So you shouldn't uh, believe those movies where everybody's standing at the bar with a gun on. Yeah, you can you can see the reasoning be, behind having the gun laws, and the gun law was what Wyatt Earp or what uh, Virgil Earp was going to arrest exactly the the, the, the McLarens. Right, the, the technical crime that the Clantons and the McLowrys were disobeying. The technical crime was the fact that they were wearing guns inside the city limits. The underlying problem was that Ike Clanton had been going around for days threatening the lives of the police department. So it was those verbal threats that created the behavior and the attitude that made the arrest important. But it was the fact that they were wearing guns. It's kind of like if, you, if you've got a guy that, that uh, uh, you suspect is a bank robber, but he happens to be speeding. <laughs> yeah, right. You can stop him for speeding and then find out whether he robbed a bank. You know? Right. Al Capone on uh, tax Yes, evasion. exactly. Sure. Exactly. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Our guest has been Jim Dunham of the Booth Western Art Museum up in Cartersville, a place that you should visit if you haven't visited yet. You can find it uh, on the net at www.boothmuseum.org. Jim, uh, we hope you'll come back and talk some more with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Folks, that wraps up podcast number seven here at Your Voice of the Arts. Joe Weber saying so long. Thanks for keeping me company. Join me on podcast number eight when we're going to be discussing some other desperados. These guys were back in 16th century Italy, and they had the law on their side. <laughs>